Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast, your daily dose of true crime. On today's episode, the story of Marcus Wesson. But first, your true crime headlines. A Texas bartender was arrested and charged last week a year and a half after a patron she served left her establishment and committed eight murders. 27-year-old Lindsay Glass was working at local public house in Plano, Texas, when 32-year-old Spencer Height walked into the bar one afternoon in September of 2017. She served him two drinks, and then he left. He returned about four hours later, and she served him two beers and a shot. During that second visit, he seemed agitated and drunk, and surveillance video from the bar that day showed him bumping into tables and brandishing a knife and a gun. Concerned about his behavior, the bartender texted a co-worker, Timothy Banks, asking him to come and talk to Height. In her text messages to Banks, she described Height as drunk and acting weird, and she said that she thought he may have been drinking somewhere else during the time between his first visit and his second. When Banks arrived at the bar and spoke to Height, he urged him not to drive and asked him to leave his weapons behind. Height ignored both requests and instead drove to the home of his estranged wife, Meredith, who was hosting a gathering of friends and co-workers to watch football that evening at their home. Height opened fire on the party, shooting nine people. Eight of them died. Among the dead were several of Spencer Height's friends, including two groomsmen from his wedding. Spencer Height was shot by police officers responding to the incident and died on the scene. Lindsay Glass was charged under a seldom-enforced statute forbidding service of alcohol to an intoxicated person. While it is not in dispute that she did serve alcohol to Mr. Height, her attorneys assert that she went above and beyond to try to prevent the tragedy that day by calling 911 herself to report Height's troubling behavior. She was friends with Meredith Height and would have been in attendance at the party had she not been working. Spencer Height's blood alcohol content at the time of his death was 0.33, more than four times the legal limit in the state of Texas. An airline pilot was arrested at Louisville International Airport last week and charged with three counts of murder for the 2015 deaths of his neighbors. As passengers waited to board a flight to North Carolina, their pilot, Christian Martin, was taken into custody and later indicted on three counts of murder, as well as arson, burglary, and tampering with evidence. He is accused of killing Calvin and Pamela Phillips and Edward Dancero in the small Kentucky town of Pembroke. Christian Martin, a former military officer, was court-martialed in 2015 on charges of abuse and mishandling of classified documents. His neighbor Calvin Phillips was listed as a potential witness in the case, but was murdered, along with his wife and his friend, before he had a chance to testify in military court. A 30-year-old man from Massachusetts is under arrest, charged with stabbing two hikers, one of them fatally, along a stretch of the Appalachian Trail in southern Virginia last week. The trail, which stretches for more than 2,100 miles from Georgia to Maine, draws millions of visitors annually, including thousands of hikers who attempt to traverse the entire path in a single year. The accused attacker, who was already known to authorities for harassing hikers along the trail, has been identified as James L. Jordan. Jordan encountered a group of four hikers who had set up a camp along the trail. He spoke to them through their tents, threatening to pour gasoline on them and set them on fire. The hikers started to pack up and leave, 
and Jordan attacked them with a knife. Two of them were able to flee, but Jordan stabbed the other two, fatally injuring one man and leaving one woman seriously injured. A handheld GPS device carried by one of the hikers sent an SOS signal to authorities, who used it to find the victims and their attacker. The killing is the 10th along the trail in the 45 years since record-keeping began. A jury has found 18-year-old Matthew Borges guilty of first-degree murder and the beheading death of his high school classmate Lee Viloria Paulino in 2016. It is believed that Borges, who was 15 at the time, killed 16-year-old Paulino because of jealousy over a girl, and then cut off his head and hands in an attempt to make his body more difficult to identify. Borges, who was tried as an adult for the crime, did not take the stand at his trial, and the defense did not call any witnesses. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses and presented an abundance of evidence over the course of the two-week-long trial, including text messages and journal entries outlining his plans for the crime. The jury deliberated for four hours before returning the guilty verdict. According to sentencing guidelines, Borges is now facing 25 years to life in prison. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the Murder Minute Podcast. Today, the story of a man who turned his family into an incestuous cult. Marcus Wesson was born in Kansas in 1946, the eldest of four children of Benjamin and Carrie Wesson, and raised as a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His mother was a religious fanatic, his father an alcoholic and an abuser who abandoned the family when Marcus was a child. In the early 1960s, his family moved to California, where former classmates recall that the young Marcus Wesson had close-cropped hair, liked model and electric trains, and wore slacks, a white shirt, jacket, and often a tie to Fremont Junior High School, while the other kids wore jeans and t-shirts. Marcus seemed studious, and sang in the junior high choir, but later dropped out of high school when he didn't have enough credits to graduate, and soon enlisted in the Army. Army records show that Wesson received medical corpsman training for 10 weeks in 1966 at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Following his training, he was shipped overseas, spending nearly two years as an Army ambulance driver in Europe during the Vietnam conflict. Marcus Wesson's military service would prove the only stable job he would ever have. Marcus moved back to the United States on June 2, 1968. Shortly thereafter, he began a relationship with an older married woman named Rosemary Solorio and convinced her to leave her allegedly abusive husband. Wesson soon moved in with Rosemary and her children into her three-bedroom house in San Jose. The pair had a son in 1971. But at the same time, Marcus Wesson was grooming Rosemary's eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. He told the girl that God had chosen her to be his bride. And in 1974, 
Wesson married Elizabeth, staging a wedding ceremony in their home. By the time she was 12, Wesson was sexually abusing the girl. When she was 15, Marcus and Elizabeth legally married after Elizabeth became pregnant. He was 27. By the end of the 1970s, Marcus and Elizabeth Wesson had four children, Dorian, Adrian, Kiani, and Sabrina, all born in Santa Clara County. They would go on to have six more in the 1980s. Born in Santa Clara County, Donovan, Marcus Jr., Elizabeth, and Serafino. Born in Santa Cruz County, and Gypsy, born in Fresno County. Donovan, sadly, died at only six months old from spinal meningitis. The birthplaces reflect a nomadic lifestyle. Despite his growing family, Wesson did not have a stable job. He lived on welfare, and when his children grew old enough, he sent them out to work and collected their wages for himself, while the family scavenged for food wherever they could find it. In 1981, according to court documents, Wesson applied to transfer welfare benefits to Santa Cruz County and claimed a bus as his home. In the fall of 1986, Wesson arranged to buy a 26-foot boat. He told the seller that he liked to sail and wanted to modify the boat to accommodate his wife and nine children. Paying with traveler's checks and money orders, Wesson bought the $14,000 boat in 1987. Soon after, the Santa Cruz County tax assessor was asking about the boat's value, and the welfare department wanted to explore its ownership. Several times, Wesson called the county, using the name of the actor Richard Widmark, to report that the boat belonged to someone else. He told his welfare caseworker that he needed the boat to qualify as a liveaboard so that he could gain access to the harbor bathroom and shower for his family. At the same time, he was resisting efforts to terminate his privileges at the harbor. The harbor master in Santa Cruz called it preposterous that the entire Wesson clan could sleep on the boat. Ultimately, harbor officials passed a law limiting the number of people who could live on a boat to the number of beds provided by the manufacturer. In one court letter addressed to servants of the law, Wesson wrote, a man is within the jurisdiction of equity, ethics, and legality when he takes advantage of loopholes in the law for the betterment of his family. In 1989, Wesson was criminally charged with perjury and welfare fraud related to the boat, and authorities said that he was overpaid by more than $20,000 in benefits and food stamps. Wesson, then with shoulder-length dreadlocks, decided to file a series of motions in his own case, which were dismissed by the trial judge as gibberish. He was convicted of welfare fraud and perjury in 1990 and sentenced to five years probation, 180 days in jail, and several fines. He was ordered to find a job and sell his boat to pay overdue bills at the harbor. Friends and acquaintances who knew him at the time said that Marcus Wesson just seemed like a counterculture guy who was eccentric but fairly intelligent and trying to work all the angles. But while some certainly noticed the poverty that the Wesson family was living in and their unconventional lifestyle, no one suspected the dark reality going on behind closed doors. Strict and controlling, Marcus Wesson homeschooled the children himself. He used a handwritten version of the King James Bible in which he portrayed Jesus Christ as a vampire. Gradually, 
he taught the children that he was an incarnation of God. He even claimed to be telepathic and said that God spoke through him. The Lord has me mentally hooked up to you guys 24 hours a day, he told them. Whatever I think goes to you spiritually. They were forced to refer to him as Lord or Master. The kids were raised in an abusive cult, with Wesson at its head, telling his daughters that they were destined to be his wives. Meanwhile, Marcus Wesson continued to manage and add to his unorthodox collection of property. In the 1990s, Wesson bought two more boats. One was a decaying 63-foot tugboat where the family occasionally lived. Wesson said he intended to fix up the boat and journey around the world with his children. Extended family had no idea what Marcus was doing. His brothers and sisters even entrusted him to look after their children, Marcus's nieces and nephews, while they went through their own struggles. Marcus took care to separate the girls from the boys, worrying that his incestuous lust might transmit to the next generation. The boys stayed in a rundown shack in the woods while the girls were hidden away on the boat. When Marcus's daughters or nieces reached age seven, there would be another wedding ceremony. All five of these wives would go on to become pregnant with incestuous children by Marcus. He repeatedly told them, God's people are becoming extinct. We need to preserve God's children. We need to have more children for the Lord. To hide the incestuous relationships, Wesson told the girls to tell relatives that they were artificially inseminated. Wesson began to prepare the children for the apocalypse. If the time came, are you ready? He would ask. As they understood it, detectives say, Wesson was asking whether they were ready to kill themselves and others if the government tried to split up the family. Police officers, he taught them, were demons coming to hurt them. Marcus Wesson said that he was Christ and referred to law enforcement authorities as Satan. He was fascinated with Branch Davidian leader David Koresh, a charismatic man with multiple wives who commanded nearly 80 Branch Davidians killed in 1993 when their Waco, Texas compound exploded in fire. While watching television news accounts of the siege, Wesson told his children, This is how the world is attacking God's people. This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord. That's what we should be doing, making children for the Lord. If the police ever broke into the home, he had taught the children what to do. They would fight back. They would defend the family. They would protect their God. Anyone who disobeyed Wesson or talked to a person outside of the family was beaten, even for misdeeds as trivial as taking a teaspoon of peanut butter. When the family went out, the children walked in a single file line behind Wesson. All dressed in black robes, they were told to look at the ground and avoid making eye contact with anyone. By the late 90s, the children of Marcus and Elizabeth were teenagers and becoming young adults. Most were working, often starting at McDonald's and later waitresses at the Radisson Hotel in downtown Fresno, with Marcus Wesson, of course, managing their money. In 2000, the family bought a badly fire-damaged historic two-story Tudor home built in 1935 that was near Fresno City College. It was sold by a lawyer, Frank Muna, to Kiani Wesson, Sabrina Wesson, Sofia Solorio, and Ruby Sanchez. 
Muna recalled meeting with several young women and Wesson, who talked about the repairs he thought were needed to make the home livable. Originally, Wesson said he wasn't related to the women. Later, he said that he was an uncle of two of them. Marcus Wesson wasn't listed on the title. At the Cambridge Avenue house, there were problems documented in an inches-thick code enforcement file. The city complained about the lack of progress in refurbishing the home and that someone was living in an old shed behind the main house. The women handled the code enforcement complaints, and city officials who saw Wesson at the house believed that he was a workman. In May of 2001, Muna sued the women for failing to pay him for the full price of the damaged home. He says that he noticed a relationship between Wesson and the women. Once he saw one woman sitting next to Wesson with her hand in his back pocket. Another time, he saw one give Wesson a kiss goodbye on the lips. Muna also saw two coffins on the property. One contained bedding, he says, and may have been being used as a crib. Wesson had apparently bought seven to ten caskets from an antique store for between $400 and $500 apiece, he claimed, to make furniture. In December of 2002, Marcus Wesson attempted to sell a manuscript about his life titled In the Night of the Light for the Dark to the New York publishing company Vantage Press. The company rejected it, saying it didn't make sense. Meanwhile, code enforcement battles continued at City Hall, and the family began dodging inspections of the home by saying that they were working in the Bay Area and couldn't arrange to be at the house. Inspectors also noticed their large school bus and a utility trailer parked in the driveway. In July of 2003, the city began issuing citations for illegal storage of the vehicles. Marcus Wesson was losing control, and his grip on some of his adult children soon began to weaken when 19-year-old daughter Gypsy was the first Wesson girl to escape, though she did not report her father to the authorities. The legal and city battles over the house soon evaporated when the family quickly sold the house, realizing that they had dangerously attracted the attention of authorities, and Marcus Wesson risked exposure. But the Wesson family, which now included several more children, didn't move far. In September of 2003, Rosa Solorio purchased a new property near Roding Park. But the family ran into trouble again with city authorities at their new Fresno home. Authorities say the family violated city codes by living in the building which was zoned for commercial rather than residential use. Officials also said that the Wesson's converted school bus shouldn't be parked in a residential area. They were issued a citation and ordered to leave or obtain a special permit to stay. The deadline was March 12, 2004. Wesson was now saying that he wished to relocate his daughters and their children to Washington State, where Wesson's parents lived, but some family members had had enough. When March 12th arrived, Marcus Wesson's nieces, Sofina Solorio and Ruby Sanchez, went to the property to take their children by Wesson who were being held inside. Wesson refused, and the police were called. The officers ordered him out. Fresno police believed that they were responding to what was described as a child custody issue. During the course of the standoff, Wesson, who first appeared cooperative to the police, was permitted to step away and go back into the house. Fresno police testified that they did not hear gunshots being fired shortly thereafter, 
though other witnesses present at the standoff testified that they did hear gunshots fired at the time. The police had no legal right to enter, even after talking with a city attorney. Two family members burst out of the building, shouting that Wesson had a gun. A SWAT team was called. Just as they arrived, Wesson stepped out of the house. He was drenched in blood and stood with his hands in the air, calmly surrendering. The police arrested Wesson and finally entered the house. Inside, they found nine dead bodies, their ages ranging from just one year old to 25. Sabrina Wesson, 25. Elizabeth Wesson, 17. Ilabel Wesson, 8. Aviv Wesson, 7. Jonathan Wesson, 7. Ethan Wesson, 4. Sedona Wesson, 2. Marche Wesson, 2. And Java Wesson, 1. Each had been shot through the eye. The bodies were slumped on the ground in the bedroom, and the walls were lined with ten antique coffins. After three decades of rape and incest, Marcus Wesson's reign as a cult leader was over. The murder was described by the mayor of Fresno as the worst mass killing in the city's history. At trial, Marcus Wesson's public defenders presented the defense that his 25-year-old daughter Sabrina, whose one-year-old son Marche, who was Wesson's own son and grandson, was killed as well, had herself committed the murders and then subsequently committed suicide. The murder weapon, a 22 caliber handgun, was found with her body, and Sabrina's DNA was also found on the weapon. While it was plausible that Wesson himself did not fire the fatal shots, the jury found him guilty, presumably concluding that he was responsible for the deaths having brainwashed his family into entering into a suicide pact. Marcus Wesson was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder on June 17, 2005, and 14 counts of forcible rape and the sexual molestation of seven of his daughters and nieces, and was sentenced to death. However, in March of 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order halting executions in California while he is in office. So for now, Marcus Wesson remains safe in San Quentin Prison. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, Download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.